This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. We're back. Happy 2018, everyone. We have a lot in store for you this year. I'll be making several announcements about some of our plans over the coming weeks. For today, I'd like to welcome Lushik Waba to the Fresh Ed team. Lushik is an undergraduate student at Bennington College in Vermont, where she is studying education and social justice. We're excited to have her help produce the show. To kick off the new year, we have a special show for you. Today, Linda Darling-Hammond joins me to talk about her new co-authored book, Empowered Educators, How High-Performing Systems Shape Teaching Quality Around the World. I think these are countries that feel that you can't get where you're going as a 21st century nation in a knowledge-based economy with all of the technology uh, that is driving innovation and change if you don't have really high quality schools that are staffed by really high quality teachers and leaders. The book explores how several countries and jurisdictions have developed comprehensive teaching and learning systems that have produced a range of positive outcomes from student achievement to equity and from a professionalized teaching workforce to the integration of research and practice. No system is ever perfect. Furthermore, no system can be lifted up, you know, whole cloth and adopted by anyone else, right? Everything is highly contextualized. So I would say that in virtually all of the systems we looked at, uh, people are struggling with uh, equity issues. Linda Darling-Hammond is the president of the Learning Policy Institute and a professor of education emeritus at Stanford University. Linda Darling-Hammond, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much for having me. So many listeners probably know you for the work or, or the work that you do on the U.S. education systems. You've worked on the Obama transition team in 2008 on education policy. You were supposedly in the running to be the U.S. Secretary of Education. And many U.S. states have actually worked with you on reforming their education systems over the years. So instead of focusing on the U.S. education system today, I thought it would actually be pretty valuable for listeners to hear from you about the work you do outside of the U.S. on, the, on exploring systems of education worldwide. So with that said, you've recently um, put together a book, a uh, co-written book, that looks at teaching in Singapore, Finland, Australia, Canada, and China. Why did you select these countries and jurisdictions to explore? Well, it was a combination of things. Uh, one is that, of course, there's a lot of interest in these countries because they tend to show up you know, at the high end of the distribution on things like PISA tests. But even more importantly than that is that these were places that have really thought hard about how to create a system of high quality teaching. They've worked on it for a number of years. They've really developed uh, a coherent approach to the support of teaching. And we wanted to see um, what that looks like and kind of look at the outcomes that are associated with that kind of coherent systemic approach. So what does that look like? Can you take me inside some of these systems and, and tell me what, you know, what does it look like to have a systemic approach to teaching and learning? 
Well, it's both thinking about the teaching career in an integrated way and attending to how we recruit people into the profession who have the kinds of knowledge, skills, and attributes that you want in teachers. Uh, also recruiting people into leadership roles later in their careers, how you prepare them, uh, how that engages uh, them in the work in the schools as well as in the universities so that they're experiencing the kind of curriculum and instructional strategies that are also part of that state, province, or country, Uh, the induction process of the beginning of the career, the ongoing professional learning, but also the compensation uh, that is part of uh, the choice of the occupation and the school funding that enables or disables uh, the implementation of the kinds of practices that are needed and desired in that society. So we, these are places that really uh, think about that in a holistic way. We did find that in some countries there was more attention to some features than others. For example, Finland is well known for a very, very highly developed pre-service teacher preparation system, uh, whereas you would see uh, very strong attention to teacher induction in Shanghai. Uh, But they're accomplishing similar things in sometimes slightly different ways. And every one of these jurisdictions was filling in the parts of the system where they felt that they uh, had done less work previously. So they had a conception of how to keep moving all the parts forward. And this is this is mainly at the um, policymaker level where, where these where policymakers are trying to fill in these gaps, as you say? Well, we, in our study, looked at, of course, we talked to a lot of policymakers. In the small countries, much of the activity is national. In, in the large countries, most of the activity is at the state or province level, you know, in China, in Australia, in um, Canada. Um, but we also uh, worked with and talked to people in schools of education, in schools themselves, in organizations that support professional learning. Uh, So we were engaged with many people in the profession, as well as folks who think about how to fund and enable and support uh, the work of the profession through policy. And in in these different jurisdictions in which you explored, how involved are, are teachers themselves in this process of enabling comprehensive teaching and learning systems? In most of the places we visited, and I think I can probably say in all of them, there was substantial involvement of teachers uh, throughout that whole system. Uh, Teachers are involved, for example, in developing the curriculum standards that, um, you know, the national curriculum or the state or provincial curriculum that guides what teachers do in the classroom. There are usually ministries of education or departments of education that uh, are uh, full of um, people who were in the profession and have, um, you know, eventually ended up in the department. In some places, there's a very strong pipeline to develop people through the system to um, come into the ministry, for example, in Singapore or in um, Ontario, Canada. 
uh, seconding people from the world of practice into the Department of Education so that there are current practitioners available as well. But then as policies are being debated and formed and so on, there's a lot of engagement of members of the profession in uh, sort of informing the nature of the policies, um, thinking through and helping to revise and revamp the implementation over time, uh, much more connected activity between the members of the profession and the members of uh, government in most of these jurisdictions. I would say there was one partial uh, exception for a period of time in Victoria, Australia, where a government took over for a short period of time that was much less connected to the profession, but it lasted a short time. And then uh, when that government changed, uh, the um, work resumed to really ensure that the policies were supportive and informed by the members of the profession. So, I mean, like, why are policymakers at these different levels of government encouraging of teachers, members of the profession, to join in this policy dialogue? I mean, you know, like, is it is is there public opinion in these jurisdictions that is supportive of teachers that then policymakers are reacting to? Or, you know, I guess, what is the underlying reason that policymakers are so engaged with members of this profession uh, when they make policy? I think, you know, there is a strong valuing of the profession of teaching. Um, and you can really see it in places like Singapore, which thinks of teachers as nation builders. Uh, and there's a lot of energy put into how do we recruit the best people? How do we support them? Uh, the government will raise teacher salaries you know, unilaterally whenever they feel they may be falling behind those of other college graduates so that there's always the capacity to recruit the uh, sort of best people into the profession in Finland. Um, teaching is the number one profession chosen by um young people, uh, particularly primary school teaching, uh, because it is highly respected and highly valued. There's a lot of investment in the preparation uh, of teachers. Uh, I think in recent years in Canada, again, a resurgence of real uh, respect for and investment in teaching after an era where that was uh, somewhat less the case more than um, a decade ago. But in places that have really uh, try to both invest in education and see that as important and equalize educational opportunity for all of the groups of students in their societies, uh, the uh, absolute need to invest in teaching in ways that actually improve the quality of teaching, which also means, of course, listening to what teachers um, need to do their work well, uh, has really risen to the surface. You see the same thing in China. There's a massive set of investments going on across China in uh, the quality of teaching and in the quality of teachers. Shanghai is at the front end of that uh, process. Um, and I think these are countries that feel that you can't get where you're going as a 21st century nation in a knowledge-based economy with all of the technology uh, that is driving innovation and change if you don't have uh, really high quality schools that are uh, staffed by really high quality teachers and leaders. So in, in a place like Shanghai, what is the government investing in to produce that quality? I mean, that, uh, 
in education research, we often hear quality, but it's it's usually a rather vague term. So, you know, when policymakers actually fund things, what are they actually putting the money into? <laughs> well, there's a lot of things. In, in one, for one thing, the teachers in these jurisdictions uh, are paid equivalently to other college graduates. Just as a point of contrast, in the United States, teachers are paid about 30% less than other college graduates. Uh, and in a number of these jurisdictions, you know, the government actually is part of leveraging those investments. But beyond that, in all of these jurisdictions, the bulk of the cost, and in some cases, the entire cost of teacher education is paid for by the government so that you can recruit good people in and not put them into debt while they're preparing to teach. They invest in high quality preparation so that the caliber of what teachers experience is uh, high quality. In Finland and Singapore, teachers earn a stipend or um, a salary while they're training. I believe that's also true in Shanghai. Um, in um, most, in all of these jurisdictions, there's a lot of investment in induction for beginning teachers. There are trained mentors available in places like Singapore and Shanghai. They are part of a career ladder of teachers in schools. They're senior or mentor teachers who are uh, identified based on their own accomplished teaching. They do earn greater compensation when they are so identified. Uh, and then they are given release time to spend uh, inducting new teachers in and supporting other teachers in the school around action research and other forms of professional learning that are going on. Uh, so the investments are of many kinds in Virtually all of these uh, countries is a major investment in professional development for teachers in a variety of ways, both through institutions like the Singapore Academy of Teachers, which uh, is really run by teachers for teachers to support their professional development. Uh, in Ontario, the government funds uh, action research projects and curriculum development projects that teachers propose. Uh, many of those then are researched and scaled up across a uh, school district or a province as they uh, are, are demonstrated to be effective. Um, so the investments come in many ways, uh, good working conditions uh, that enable teachers to do their work well, enough time for teachers to have collaboration with each other and uh, opportunities for uh, ongoing uh, professional development. All of those investments uh, enable people both to become highly effective. Uh, that makes them feel better about the profession and want to stay longer because when you are seeing the effects of good teaching on children, that's what actually motivates teachers to want to stay in the profession. Um, and they um, contribute to the retention rates that create a, a, a career-long, um, continuous uh, occupation, which in and of itself both improves the caliber of teaching and the odds of higher achievement, particularly for students um, who may have greater educational needs. What's the role of teacher unions in these different jurisdictions? All of the jurisdictions have teacher unions, and they are strong parts of the system in most cases. Um, 
I think, you know, virtually all of the teachers are members of unions in all of the jurisdictions. Uh, the roles of unions do vary from place to place. One of the things that I find very interesting is that uh, in places, I mentioned Singapore, for example, Shanghai is similar, where the government raises salaries because they want to get high-quality people into the profession, and the union doesn't actually have to do much bargaining to get salaries, then the role of the teachers union uh, is really around structuring professional learning opportunities, um, giving feedback and input on the various kinds of curriculum reforms or um, policies that are taking place rather than locked into um, adversarial collective bargaining. Um, so it, it's a, a different role uh, from place to place, but I would say in all of the cases, the a major part of the teacher union role is the role of representing the profession in terms of guiding professional learning, professional development, and professional practices. So in these jurisdictions, how are like what are the outcomes that the policymakers and the the members of the profession are are looking for. I mean, I, you mentioned achievement, higher achievement on various exams, for instance. And um, I know all of these jurisdictions score well on PISA, but are there other outcomes that um, are of interest to these jurisdictions for high quality teaching and learning systems? Well, just with respect to student outcomes, you know, there's also the relatively smaller gap between high and low performing students, and so uh, more equitable outcomes, um, high outcomes with respect to student graduation rates um, and continuation rates uh, beyond uh, secondary school are, you know, among the other uh, fewer students um, who are struggling in school identified for things like special education or retained in grade uh, that's uh, relatively rare. Um, so there are those kinds of outcomes. There are also the outcomes of uh, more engaging and creative teaching, a lot of work in all of these countries on really transforming curriculum and assessment so that it uh, better reflects and measures 21st century skills, problem solving, critical thinking, kids applying their knowledge in uh, much more complex ways, project-based learning, um, ways by which kids are being taught to become sort of self-managing learners. Uh, all of those are byproducts of having a really well-educated and well-supported teaching force because they require much more sophisticated practices in the classroom uh, than, you know, sort of putting everybody in a row and having them read the textbook and answer the questions at the back of the chapter and spit it back uh, on a test at the end of the week. Uh, and so it's an important byproduct um, of the investments in the profession, uh, which is really the investments in the uh, capacity of the young people to be able to manage and lead in the very complex society and economy that we currently are experiencing. So in, in the work across these jurisdictions, what was, what was the biggest surprise that you found? There were a number of surprises. One was that in all of these jurisdictions, the role of research in teaching was very highly developed. 
Teachers are uh, trained to become researchers, uh, action researchers in the classroom. They are trained to learn to use research as the basis for decision making. There are teams of teachers that engage in action research projects together. In Finland, uh, to become a primary school teacher, you take an examination which requires you to read several pieces of educational research and then to be able to interpret and comment on the meaning of that research just for starters. And then when you finish your preparation program, you actually do a thesis, which is a uh, research on practice. In Shanghai, uh, most teachers have uh, published at least one research article. They do action research in teams in every school. They'll take a problem of practice and figure out how to inquire into it and then um, figure out what's working and write up the results. So uh, most teachers have published. They have journals for teachers to share their research with each other. And uh, traditional university-based researchers often work with teachers um, in, uh, in a number of cases. Um, some of the teachers uh, in um, Shanghai have published as much as a tenured university professor. That's not uncommon uh, in this country. Uh, but that work of the teacher as an inquirer, as a researcher, as a investigator, a problem solver, someone who is always taking up and solving problems of practice is really getting embedded in teacher education and teacher development across all of these jurisdictions. And that was uh, both uh, surprising and inspiring to see. Uh, and of course, it propels the profession forward because what a profession relies on is not just what individual practitioners have figured out by trial and error. A profession is defined by uh, developing knowledge and sharing that knowledge so that practice becomes more effective across the entire profession. And did you find or uncover any noticeable flaws in some of these systems? Well, no system is ever perfect. Uh, and furthermore, no system can be lifted up, you know, whole cloth and adopted by anyone else, right? Everything is highly contextualized. So I would say that in virtually all of the systems we looked at, uh, people are struggling with uh, equity issues. Um, every society is becoming more diverse as people move around uh, uh, in the world. Uh, immigration, refugees, uh, native or indigenous peoples whose education has been um, truncated and um, in the past, you know, really undermined in a variety of ways. So we saw in every case recognition of the inequalities and many efforts to uh, address those, ranging from uh, in uh, Canada, you know, preparation programs uh, designed specifically to train teachers in new ways for uh, teaching First Nations people and um, creating uh, various kinds of incentives to support uh, First Nations individuals to access those programs and to become leaders um, in their communities as well as uh, to recruit other teachers to those communities. We saw similar work going on um, in parts of Australia. 
Um, you know, Finland is very uh, equity oriented. Many schools in Helsinki are now predominantly uh, populated by immigrant students from everywhere, ranging from Somalia and Eastern Europe uh, to the Middle East and uh, Russia, and lots of really uh, deep innovations to try to figure out how to create a multilingual, multicultural context uh, for all of the kids and especially to um, enable um, new immigrants to become uh, comfortable and part of the society. So I would say that's one of the places where we saw a lot of self-criticism uh, in you know the societies. How are we going to address the needs that maybe have not been addressed in the past? Or how are we going to address the new needs that are becoming obvious uh, in our society? So you earlier said that... Um you know, you can't simply take the how one education system works and, and pluck it and put it into another education system, another context. The contexts are very different. So how did you manage to um, control or how did you just manage the hugely different contexts of these different locations? Well, one of the things you have to do if you're doing this kind of research is really deeply understand the context and really look at that as part of the research itself and not just uh, try to understand ideas out of context. And then you need to be able to understand how aspects of the context ranging from, you know, the way in which the country or the state or province is demographically comprised, geographically comprised, what the history and the culture have been, the mix of uh, peoples, the governance structures, etc. You have to understand all of that and then understand how the practices evolve, uh, have come out of that context. And if you're trying to think about how a, a practice might be uh, used in another context, you then have to look at it and sort of uh, ask the question, you know, which features of this um, might be transferable given what you know about that other context and which of them uh, maybe, you know, only um, applicable or primarily applicable applicable in the context that uh, that they exist in. So, um, for example, I was just giving you the um, example of um, a teacher preparation programs that we saw in Ontario that were really designed for teachers of First Native, First Nations people. So, for example, the teacher preparation programs in Ontario uh, or Alberta, Canada, that were aimed at teachers for First Nations people were really rooted in the context of the history and culture of that uh, province and the people um, that were uh, the focus of the learning and the development of those teachers. Uh, that might be very hard to take up and, you know, replicate that in, um, you know, another uh, country. But there may be some principles from that work uh, that could travel to uh, another context where some of the same questions or issues are at hand. And then the you'd have to really adapt it to the context that you're thinking about. Uh, so I think you know, we really looked at the issue of uh, what principles or general ideas might uh, capture the specific 
practices we saw, and we tried for the reader and for people who may use the work to illuminate you know, both the specific practices, where they grew up in the context, and what kind of principles might apply if one wanted to carry some of the ideas elsewhere. So let's do that. Let's turn to the United States, which is you know, the context um, in which you are probably most active, if I could say that. Um, you know, what sort of principles did you pull out that you think might be applicable to the U.S. education system, either nationally or within individual states, since we have one of those large education systems? Yeah, I think most of the lessons that we found are applicable primarily at the state level. States are, you know, predominantly responsible for education in the U.S. They are often about the size of the small nations we studied and have similar governance um, purview. Uh, and they're analogous to the provinces, for example, in Canada uh, or the states in Australia. Uh, what I carried from the studies abroad are the importance of, first of all, equalizing funding for schools generally, because in the U.S. we have such unequal funding within states of schools and districts that we start with the expectation that there are likely to be teacher shortages uh, in some parts of the state and not in others based on funding. Uh, we also... Uh, tend not these days to fund preparation programs. So teachers have to go into debt in order to go into a profession that then pays less in most cases than what other college graduates earn. Uh, so I think we need to start by really looking at equalizing funding and salaries across um, states. There are examples of states that have done that and they have uh, had a tremendously positive effects on recruitment. We need to say to beginning uh, teachers who are interested in the profession, if you will teach, we will pay for your education. Uh, we need to be very uh, selective about the programs that are allowed to educate teachers. And uh, some of the best practices we saw around the world were actually borrowed from some of the best practices in teacher preparation in the United States. But we don't tend to scale those practices up and make them widely available. So we need to take those best practices and ensure that they are planted in all of the schools of education that are allowed to educate teachers. We found that there were many fewer schools of education in most of the jurisdictions we studied. Uh, and so they invested in high quality, but fewer of them. I think that's probably a good lesson for many states in the U.S. Uh, and then I think uh, the confidence with which beginners could go into the field and know they would have trained mentors uh, who were senior teachers in the school is something that we also need to emulate. Some states have made a start on that. Uh, but again, it's been uneven. It's uh, had funding that comes and goes and hasn't been always done in a way that is uh, universal and high quality. So, you know, in, in this menu of different lessons that you've, you've learned and, and you'd like to see applied to the, the different state levels, scaled up to the state level across America, do you think the, the, the Trump administration or, or the Betsy DeVos um, administration in, 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 in education will actually try and 
use some of these lessons that you learned in any meaningful way? I think the action in the United States right now is in the states. Um, there is a gridlock at the federal level. The issues of a professional teaching force are not particularly on the table as one can see by just watching the nightly news. But uh, the states are the main place where the uh, responsibility lies, where the action is. Uh, I think this federal government could play a productive role at some point in time by uh, underwriting the preparation of teachers to go into high-need fields and high-need locations as the federal government does in the medical profession. And I guess to, to end, you know, for my final question, after looking at these different jurisdictions of comprehensive teaching and learning systems, how would you describe the way in which education is understood as a public good? I, in the systems we studied, uh, education really is thought of as the pathway to uh, prosperity, to security, to the welfare of the people in the society. It is it is considered a public good. There are um, investments that are aimed at ensuring uh, equitable access to educational opportunities. That has to mean equitable access to high-quality teachers and school leaders. Uh, and I think that the results that they see, which are both uh, high-quality instruction and uh, equitable opportunities and outcomes to a greater extent than uh, is the case in many parts of the United States are a result of seeing education as something that has societal benefits and therefore you know, requires those kinds of uh, investments uh, both in the personnel and in the uh, systems that support them. Well, Linda Darling-Hammond, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to have you on today. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Linda Darling-Hammond is the president of the Learning Policy Institute and a professor of education emeritus at Stanford University. Her co-authored book, Empowered Educators, was published last year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.